0: Hey everyone, I'm Jim Anbusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. On September 13, 1814, British warships began a 25-hour bombardment of Fort McHenry near Baltimore, Maryland, during the War of 1812. At dawn on the following morning, Francis Scott Key, who had witnessed the assault, caught sight of the large American flag still flying over the fort, and soon began to compose the tune that we now know as the Star-Spangled Banner. Of all the things that he could have done after seeing that flag, why did Key write a song? And how did his new composition fit into a much longer history of music as a form of political persuasion in the early republic? On today's episode, Dr. Billy Coleman joins us to explore the power of music in the early United States and how Federalists in particular used it as a kind of weapon to advance their vision of a harmonious nation led by elites. He also helps us to understand why music as a form of historical evidence is a remarkable way to get inside the heads and the hearts of people from ages past. Coleman is the Kinder Institute Postdoctoral Fellow in Political History at the University of Missouri. He is the author of Harnessing Harmony, Music, Power, and Politics in the United States, 1788 to 1865, which was published in 2020 by the University of North Carolina Press. But wait, there's more. Coleman and his collaborator, the music producer Running Notch, have created a soundtrack for the book featuring modern interpretations of some of the most important political songs of the 18th and 19th centuries. Be sure to check out the show notes for a link to the complete soundtrack or search Harnessing Harmony on Spotify. Now, you'll hear clips from a couple of these tunes over the course of today's program, but make sure you stick around after the credits roll for an exclusive opportunity to hear the complete versions of "Hail Columbia, and Jefferson and Liberty. Thanks so much to Billy Coleman and Running Notch for permission to include these tracks on this episode. All right, get out your songbooks, folks, because it's time to harness harmony in the early republic with Billy Coleman. I guess it makes sense to start this way. I mean, you've written a book about music. Uh, You've produced a companion soundtrack to this book, which we'll talk about over the course of our conversation. But I gather that you've uh, always been a fan of music and probably you are a musician yourself.
1: Yes. Well, I think uh, probably like a fair amount of people who end up writing about music in one way, shape or another. I started out thinking at first that I wanted to play it. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I grew up in choirs. Actually, I think, come to think of it, the first job I ever had was singing. Uh, in an opera, which is a weird thing to think about. But yeah, so yeah, I used to sing in choirs and stuff. And then by the time I was in undergraduate school in Australia, in Sydney, Australia, Mm -hmm. I spent most of my time playing in a band uh, instead. So uh, we had this small record label that made it seem very serious, uh, even though it was a very fun thing that we were doing. And just, I would just spend as much time as possible on it mm-hmm. and, you know, enroll for the absolute bare minimum amount of credits that I could get away with uh, <laughs> without dropping out. But I didn't drop out. And so when I did take courses, I'd end up sort of, uh, you know, finding a course that was based around some kind of major research project. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would use that as an opportunity to just spin my way into writing about music somehow, because that's what I was interested in. And that kind of led to me writing about music. And so then the band sort of wound up eventually. And I thought about going to graduate school, it Just I didn't really think about the option about writing about something different mm-hmm. um, than, than sort of music and, and, and politics and, and history. What was the name of your band and what, what kind of music were you playing? We were called Days Like Stars uh, and we were playing kind of indie rock. Mm-hmm. And so this is back slightly before YouTube was a big thing. So there's, there's like minimal uh evidence of this online, although there is plenty of it there. And TAs of mine in the past have uh, managed to make full <laughs> use of that uh, with my students. We had some... A, a bit of success in in some ways, being on TV shows and stuff. But um, mm-hmm. it's uh, it was always sort of something that ended up just being fun, and we ended up getting interested in other things and and just moving on eventually.
0: Well, that's really really fascinating. So then, I, I guess, how did you become interested in early American history? It's very clear that you you're very committed to do, writing about music since your undergraduate days and so i you know i guess that's a natural extension into your into doctoral work but uh why early america you know why why was that a particular time that interested you and then and how early americans were thinking and using music
1: well a lot of that comes down to my personal circumstances i guess Mm -hmm. i mean i don't sound american um, (laughs) (laughs) but uh the fact is that technically i am american so Mm -hmm. i was born in texas but I left the United States when I was eight years old and moved to Australia. So I grew up in Australia like as the American kid. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what would happen is that people would always ask me to any kind of question related to like American stuff, including American history. And they would assume that I knew the answer because I was like the American kid. (laughs) But, you know, I didn't. I I had no more knowledge of American history than your average seven-year-old American boy. Eventually, that kind of just led me to, you know, having an interest in American history. Which, as someone that is living outside the United States in Australia, it it is. I can only imagine that being in the United States and having an interest in American history can seem sometimes like it's like uh, like almost too straightforward of a mm-hmm. thing to get into. But for me, living in Australia, it sort of combines. Having this sort of personal connection with it that other people didn't necessarily have who were around me and the fact that, you know, living outside of the United States at this point in a place like Australia or or Canada or the United Kingdom, if you're interested in the world, it's hard to not have any kind of interest in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of, I guess the the way that world power <laughs> is at the moment, right? So mm-hmm. your life is entwined culturally and politically and, um, in all sorts of, you know, deep and meaningful ways with the United States. So those two things kind of combined in my mind and, and, and made early America and, and 19th century America just sort of stand out to
0: me as something that felt like the thing that I should be writing about. Well, let's talk uh, more about your book then. And uh, I'm eager to get into it. Can you tell us, uh... How early Americans, you know, in the late 18th century are writing music, are listening to music, are performing music? What is their, what is the relationship between early Americans and music? Sort of on the eve of George Washington's inauguration where your book really begins, what's in general, what's Americans' relationship with music like in this time period?
1: Well, it's really interesting to me because I think especially in comparison to now, music sort of in on the eve of Washington's inauguration sort of around beginning of the the 1790s decade it's kind of everywhere and nowhere all at once compared to how <laughs> we would imagine it right like music is not some kind of like rare thing that people never hear right mm-hmm. like music is sort of around all the time but it's not ubiquitous in the same way that it is for us now when you can you know have you know recorded audio technology when you can press a button and and make music appear in a perfect rendition of it sort of whenever you whenever you feel like it um and listen to it at that kind of remove so you know in 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 this time and place you know if you're going to Play music, you have to engage in it either communally in a group, usually with friends and family, or if you're doing it in a solitary way, it is only sort of through reading it, right? Engaging Mm -hmm. with it in print, um, or in some cases, you know, in manuscript form, like writing it out um, for sort of a certain segment of a a slightly more middle to upper class um, segment of the population. But for the most part, you know, it's in print and it's in these communal environments that are typically typically in the home and in a religious environment mm. um, and that's where most people connect to it most of the time this you know i'm not i don't want to downplay that music is also sort of part of like street culture and festive mm-hmm. culture but sometimes the way that i see it is that sort of this connection that music has to to religious worship to home life private life this is something that imbues its presence when it is as they said at the time out of doors right when it's in the street Mm -hmm. a lot of people when they're using it in those circumstances can see themselves as doing something that is upright and respectable because a lot of the associations that people have with music comes from either of those two places and i think that is a kind of important context around just the way people gauged
0: music in that era. Yeah. So where are they sourcing music from? Is it uh, some of it homegrown or is a lot of it coming from Europe?
1: Well, by this point, you sort of have the beginnings of, as they call it, sort of native composed music, Mm -hmm. Uh, not by Native Americans per se, but people who were born in that country uh, who are who are white for the most part. Although there are at this point also African Americans who are, are, are writing, performing music, and they can access sort of these Western traditions as well. So there is the beginnings of this, though for the most part, it is definitely music that um, arrives in the United States from other places. Depending on who you are, this is music that comes from Africa or Europe, um, and if you're white, it's especially music that's coming from Britain. One of the things about this era is that you know we don't in generally speaking, most people don't know that much about the music that was played during this time mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of music that Americans liked the most at this point was actually, it wasn't music that people in a kind of musicological sense think of as part of the canon of being important music from that period. Mm-hmm. It wasn't trend-breaking music. They, they were <laughs> at the front of world trends. If anything, they were trailing behind them. Uh, quite substantially. And what they really tended to like most, especially sort of in in white American circles, was sort of excerpts from British comedic operas, sentimental kind of tunes. In some ways, you know, the Star Spangled Banner, the, the melody that that's based on is relatively mm-hmm. emblematic of the kinds of music that they tended to be drawn to. It's not music that is, you know, particularly impressive in the context of the canon of classical music in the 18th and 19th century, if anything, Mm -hmm. it was more popular sort of decades earlier in other centers. And in some ways it's almost as if they were, it's, it's a strange comparison perhaps, but it's it's almost as if now we would find ourselves all being really into eighties music purely. It's like, you know, it's like a little (laughs) bit past time. There's still a kind of connection to it. People can understand why they like it and why it is important, but it's, it's slightly out of date, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, In part, that's why I think we don't necessarily know as much about this music that Americans were into at the time because in retrospect, we don't tend to find it all that sort of interesting or important
0: in itself, the music in itself. So you, I guess we would have a tendency then to think that well, surely they're listening to the classics of the European masters or, or something. But there, it sounds like they're listening to music that's like the '80s, much more comfortable and familiar, and I guess heartwarming in a sense.
1: At that point, yeah, I mean, if you wanted to like listen to European masters as as we tend to think of it now, that's something that happens a bit more often. A few decades later and that's mm-hmm. pure because you know if you're going to have an orchestra that's quite a big deal yeah. <laughs> like this there's, there's, there's not that many sort of groups in the united states that have the skill that have the you know economic capacity to get all that music to bring all that kind of expertise together and and play these kinds of orchestral masters mm-hmm. to a level that makes economic sense sure as as well as anything else So yeah, in some ways that stuff isn't quite popular yet for practical Mm -hmm. reasons as as well as anything else. I mean, people need to be able to actually perform this music and and have that expertise. And the Europeans that have that expertise do immigrate to the United States and they tend to start doing it for the most part around this specific point in time. So it's kind of a a growing culture in that aspect of
0: it. So, as Americans are listening to music uh, in the home or in uh, smaller gatherings as they're writing it themselves or as if they're using music from, from other places and, and recombining it and, and doing all kinds of interesting things with it, you know, a big part of your book, or all of your book, is about how music is deployed in a political context. And there's a you know, very exciting political context emerging in the 1790s when the, the Republic is on what seems to be a firmer footing under the Constitution now. And uh, about a decade ago, you know, speaking of street politics and street theater, a lot of historians were writing about how early Americans were voicing their political views through things like like street theater or through parades or installing temporary monuments or, you know, setting up liberty poles and things like that as a way to sort of carve out their political territory. And, you know, if I remember from from some of that literature, it wasn't a whole lot that dealt with music. And, and one of the things you said a moment ago is that, uh, you know, we really haven't paid attention to that kind of stuff before. And so, how was it that you sort of thought about your place within this larger conversation and how you could add a musical voice to it to help us better understand how early Americans are, in a sense, weaponizing music as political parties and factions are forming in this central moment?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, when I came into this, on one hand, I was approaching it as someone who you know, has this background as a musician to a certain extent who's interested in coming at it from the discipline of history. But when it comes down to it, like I was always hopeless at musicology Mm -hmm. and when I was in a band, I didn't really engage with music in that kind of sense. So I knew I was going to come at this from the perspective of history and i did sort of when i started my doctoral degree you know i really gravitated to some of that literature you're talking about there's this sort of emblematic book of it called beyond the founders that has a mm. um a, a collection of essays this new way of looking at the political culture of the early republic and looking at it through through fashion and through women's roles through material culture through food or like cheese um and all these kinds of things <laughs> and you know i sort of looked at that and i was like well i think that is that's like a way in for me right like at least mm-hmm. that that is a kind of part of this literature that sounds to me like if i was to write something these people might be interested in it and that is something that got me excited because as you say like for whatever reason they don't really focus on music that much there are some of them that that you know do but it's never anyone's prime Focus, at least mm-hmm. it, it wasn't at, at that point. So one of the reasons that that could be, and I don't really know if this is totally true, but there is sometimes a sense with historians that they can kind of avoid focusing on music because they think that there is a sense that they're not qualified to do it, mm. right? That there, mm-hmm. that there is a whole other discipline that is focused on that, that has specific skills to make music your specialty, as a historian is perhaps, you know, a bit ambitious in that sense. But, you know, I'm someone that grew up in the sort of the the 90s and the aughts and all this kind of stuff. And I grew up reading about music as much as I was playing it, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're in, if if you're someone that's in a band, you've probably been reading like street press of like music magazines and all this kind of stuff for a long time. And, you know, I inherently had no sort of sense that I needed to know about scales and musical notation to write about the kind of larger significance of music in a society, right? That's what Mm -hmm. people are doing all the time. So I got really excited about that kind of combination of things. And it just, it felt to me like music sort of started standing out as this really useful methodological tool as a historian, because like we were talking about before, music doesn't exist by accident in this Mm -hmm. era right? People can't sort of just have it playing without thinking about it. They needed to have made a decision to do it. And so that sort of gives me an in and I need to, and I'm like, okay, well, I I need to sort of find how people decided that, you know, playing music in a political context was a, was a good idea. And I can do that by reading, their letters. I can do that by reading commentary around music as to whether people sort of received this music in the way that this composer intended for it to be received or not. And, you know, I can do all this without necessarily being an expert in the actual song itself. And in some ways, I still think that can sound surprising. But one of the ways that I try and think about it sometimes is what historians tend to be trained to do is to look at a piece of historical evidence and contextualize it. And you don't necessarily have to be an expert in the actual piece of evidence itself in order to have an interpretation that is contextualized around it, right? Mm -hmm. If if we look at a letter that is written from one person to another person, it would be interesting. And we can add a really useful perspective if we are experts in the ink that was created to make that letter Mm -hmm. or the paper itself you know, there's really interesting perspectives that can be drawn from having that expertise, but we don't necessarily have to be an expert in the actual letter <laughs> itself in order to try and figure out certain interpretation about why it was significant and, and why historians and why it may sort of contribute to a larger narrative of mm. of American history, right? And that's not to say that looking at it from other perspectives is not useful, but it's, you know, it seemed to me a legitimate way of adding to a, to a conversation. Well, what was fascinating to me about your
0: book is that you have found that people are talking about music all the time, and especially in a political context. And, and I, I want to pick up on that thread and, and pair it with what, what you just said a moment ago, the, the distinction or I guess the relationship between the intentionality of a composer versus the reception by an individual or, or a, a popular audience. Early in your book, you describe a scene in which John Adams, I think, is writing to Abigail Adams about his frustrations with his inability to effectively govern as president. And he references Anfon from ancient Greece, a musician who had a power to unite everyone just by playing beautiful music and how Adams wished he had the right instruments to actually achieve that goal. But he, you know, he's, he's making a reference to, to music as a means to unite the country. And so I was wondering, you know, how were... Men like Adams, how were composers, men and women, thinking about the power of music in this period to actually help build a common American identity? I guess uh, help forge a new nation, help unite the people in the face of national and international discord.
1: That's a, a great question that um, really sort of goes to the heart of the of the entire project. So, I'll try and step my way into it. Sure. Um, I mean, one of the things that I thought was actually so unique about uh, John Adams's letter is that he actually writes it to Abigail and to his son Charles. Mm. Um, not exactly the same letter, but he quotes exactly the same paragraph that was authored by uh, the English poet Alexander Pope, that was about this sort of character from Greek myth, Amphion, who was able to build the stone wall of Thebes. Right, just he could, you know, get the rocks to, you know, all follow his his will. <laughs> <laughs> right? By just playing the music. And at the time there was kind of some arguments over, you know, whether this means that maybe the ancients had a completely different definition of music, mm-hmm. right? And that they're actually maybe talking about something different. And that would explain why our music isn't as powerful as theirs. Like we, we can't literally do that. And some of those arguments kind of got into these larger disagreements over whether modernity is actually progress from, you know, where the ancient world was or whether it's Mm -hmm. a sort of sign of, of decline that sort of modern music in that sense is not seemingly as powerful. But Adams is also thinking about this in the sense of wanting to be a persuasive leader in the context of his time, right? He wants to be able to persuade people to his own point of view, like, like many leaders would do, and he wants to do so not through kind of compulsion. He wants Mm -hmm. to do so in the context uh, of a society that at least ideologically decries the whole idea of faction, of partisanship, of self-interest in that sense. And what better way to do it than through music? Right. If you're going to mm-hmm. be able to create a song and get other people singing from the same song sheet, that is a very ideal way from that, in that perspective, to be able to get everyone to see the wisdom, I guess, of your point of view. One sort of idea that helped me think about this was by a, a guy called Josh Kuhn, Kuhn, C-U-N. Um, who wrote a book called Audiotopia. Mm -hmm. And it's not about early America at all, but I found the concept particularly useful because what the idea is, is that what makes music really powerful to many people is that when you listen to music that you like, you can potentially like it because you're imagining yourself within a kind of world where other people agree with you, right? Where they understand Mm -hmm. the similar sense of justice, where they can imagine and agree with what would make the world a fairer, more just kind of place, right? And this is theoretically why, you know, as a teenager, your parents don't understand you, but then you go into your room and you listen to your favorite (laughs) records and suddenly you're in this world where everyone agrees with you, right? Mm -hmm. But taking that out of that context and put it into a political context at the start of the nation and the same sort of logic... just be really appealing right Like i get this like you know i feel like i know what the nation needs to do i need to get everyone to agree with me if i don't potentially we're in a dangerous situation you know what what how is this new nation going to survive in a world that is dangerous and we just had a revolution how are we going to stop us revolting again if Mm -hmm. people don't actually support the government that they supposedly elected in the first place. And so there is this ideal that if we can get there through the power of music in that slightly abstract sense, that this is the best way to go about this. And we can, we can do this as elites who know who have been born to a certain kind of natural status of a leader. Mm-hmm. We are the ones who need to be able to save the rest of the nation from themselves, and we can convince
0: them in a proper, non-compulsive way through this kind of musical power. And that's really the idea of the, the Federalists, right? The party of which Adams is a member, Washington does, never calls himself a Federalist, but more or less uh, he is a part of that, of that party. A group of individuals or a group of Americans who believe because of their wealth status, their education, Education that they know what's best, and that the uh, the people elected them to lead, and so they ought to lead and make judgments for them, independent of of the people's will, and that you know, music can be one way that they can help assuage any fears they might have of their potential rule.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I mean, Federalists, especially in this context, I mean, they they kind of believe that you know if. If uh, if the people have elected you, then they've elected you, <laughs> and you know if if you decide something, then they should submit to that, right? Like mm-hmm. because they have elected you, so that is the
0: way you know it, it cuts two ways. So and this this starts right at the beginning, right? Right with uh, Washington's inauguration, because there is a, a tune that's played, uh, the President's March.
1: Yes, yes. The Federalists—they are kind of a, a, a proto-party, I guess, when Washington is actually being inaugurated, but they got to figure out something to do with music, right? You know, a, a, an American thing to do, but there, there is no way that they can just come up with a, a an American thing mm-hmm. for music to be that has no connection to previous examples, right? Mm-hmm. So... If, you know, you wanted to have an impressive inauguration or an impressive leader who commands respect, then, you know, the only sort of examples they have to choose from at that point come from Europe, which is like music written in support of a king, who even if Americans don't particularly love the idea of a king at this point, they can Mm -hmm. agree that that's the kind of station that commands respect. And at least they want their president to be able to command respect. So, you know, we'll, we'll create
0: music that can support that mm-hmm. goal. So does Washington have any reservations about this? He's thinking very carefully about precedents he might set. You know, he's aware that, that people are watching his every move. And, and people are aware that music at these kinds of events have the trappings of monarchy. And so is he is he sort of thinking about this in his head about whether or not something like this would be appropriate in this context? Definitely. I
1: mean leading up to the inauguration, Francis Hopkinson writes well what, what he calls a seven songs for the harpsichord there's actually eight songs but he, he I think he added another one and then was like well I've already printed it so it's too late to but he writes those explicitly in honor of George Washington mm-hmm. and he he sends them to George Washington telling him like hey Washington like I've I've written these songs in your honor and essentially asks him are you going to give these your public blessing more or less like are you yeah. going to give them your your support and Washington is kind of like, well, I, I, I don't know uh, And he, he kind of facilitates about this because he's like, well on the one hand, I guess I agree that it'd be important to establish a foundation for art to take shape in, in this country and you know if we're going to be a great civilization then we're going to have to have... Art and music that is, you know, competitive, that is compatible with the civilizations that we've broken away from. Like, I mean, what's the point of having a revolution if you can't have a society that can even write half a decent song? Um, (laughs) you know, we have to, we have to support that. But at the same time, he's like, well, you know, people tend to not agree on music as to whether it is good or bad, right? Music is music and people very rarely just all say that, you know, some music is good. And so he's like, if I'm going to be the president, I don't necessarily want to give my approval to something where I can almost guarantee that some people are going to say is not good. Mm -hmm. And I'm definitely going to be worried about giving my approval to something that is explicitly written in honor of me. In the same manner as music would have been written in honor of a, a king or a queen or, you know, some kind of titled person in, in a sort of monarchical system. So he's not sure if that's exactly the best precedent to set. So what he ends up doing is he says, well, I'll, I'll command my sort of support and respect to you Francis Hopkinson as a person, but I won't necessarily, you know, approve these specific songs to the public as, you know, songs written in my honor. And he he
0: kind of tries to take a sit on the fence with it to an extent. Yeah. Well, it's a difficult position, but, you know, ultimately during the inauguration, they play the President's March. Is it Hopkinson as well? Does he write that?
1: No. So the President's March is by a guy called Philip File. um, It's like an instrumental march and then later on people know it more because it is the basis mm-hmm. for Hail Columbia that Joseph Hopkinson writes uh, i see that is Francis Hopkinson's son so it, yeah there there is a legacy <laughs> a <laughs> legacy to this here so yeah Joseph Hopkinson then goes on to write Hail Columbia that uses the president's march mm-hmm. as as its melody and he also writes a letter to Washington replicating, consciously actually replicating that his father had done the same thing earlier with songs written for George Washington. And so he also writes George Washington and says, you know, I've written this song now as well. It's not explicitly in honor of you this time, but it's explicitly sort of in honor of your <laughs> legacy, right? And, <laughs> and all of your great ideas for, you know, neutrality and being anti-partisan and, um, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Which it's, I it's like, it's like, it's not
0: about you, but it's kind of about you. And would you do me a favor, <laughs> sir? Yeah. Well, this might be a good time to talk then about the fact that as part of this book project, you've also produced a companion soundtrack that offers listeners uh, modern interpretations of a lot of these songs. And, and I'd like to play a couple of pieces from that, and, including uh, your take on Hail Columbia. But first, can you uh, sort of set this up for us uh, and tell us more about this soundtrack that you've put together?
1: Yes. I mean, I always knew when I was writing this that I wanted to be able to, you know, help people hear the music somehow. But I also, I didn't want to just have the music sound old because at least my experience as a teacher has been that if I just play people uh, music from the 18th and 19th century and expect them to connect with it, it doesn't happen. People don't quite get it. It doesn't quite compute as to why this song or that song would have actually been popular to people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just because it's historical music to us doesn't mean that it would have sounded like historical music to them or to people living 200 years ago. So I thought I'd ask my friend, Toby Shane, who I was in a band with back in Sydney, and he works as a, a producer now who goes by the the name of uh, Running Notch. And I just asked him, like, can can you create with me, like, an album of songs that makes these historical songs sound as if they might have been written in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And we just worked on that over the last couple of years, just little bits at a time, but he's really the, 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 the real brains behind the whole
0: the whole music side of it. So you were very kind uh, to give me a sneak peek at three of the tracks and we're going to play Hail Columbia here in just a second. But how many tracks will be on the finished album? It's going to be nine altogether. And uh, I guess I should add that it's going to be totally free. So it is a
1: book soundtrack, Mm -hmm. but you don't, actually have to buy the book to listen to it. It'll be available totally free for people to download. Oh, that's awesome. And where will that be available? It will be available on a website called Mm harnessingharmonysoundtrack.com. And we're working to try and get it on streaming services like Spotify and and so on, but it, it might not be there at the same time as it'll be available on the website. Well, that's
0: awesome. So let's go ahead and take a a listen to Hail Columbia. Then, you know, we can listen for about a minute and then come back and break it down a little bit because I'm curious to learn more about the, the musical influences that inspired this modern rendition. that one takes a little while to get going <laughs> what, uh, what what's great though is that uh you know this gives people just a taste but if, if i'm uh if my musical ears are attuned correctly and i i have no facility for music whatsoever uh there's a little bit of uh, synthesizer that comes in later and uh some other and actually i think an electric guitar if i heard that r- rightly
1: yeah yeah there's there's some some synthesizer then some big guitars
0: some big drums it's pretty awesome dude I, i'm not gonna <laughs> lie i i uh, you know when you sent it to me the other day i think i listened to all three tracks repeatedly for a good half hours so <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm super excited for the whole thing uh and i'm sure folks out there will be too and i i do actually want to play the the uh maybe the Jefferson and Liberty song here in, in just a minute when we talk about the Jeffersonian Republicans. But mm-hmm. uh, can you tell us about some of the influences behind this modern interpretation of Hail Columbia? I've, I've got some ideas in general uh, uh, about all three of the tracks that I've heard, but uh, before I say anything, I'm, I'm curious to hear you know what inspired you and, and the kinds of music you and your partner were thinking about as you we were putting these together.
1: Yeah. So we're kind of influenced in doing this. We, we wanted it to be Accessible, mm-hmm. um, and one of the first questions we had, we tried to work out because we we're like, okay, well, we want to make it sound like it was from the 21st century, but actually, do we? Are we trying to make this for like students, uh like mm-hmm. like student age people, or now that we're actually getting on in years, are we making it for us? Like, <laughs> yeah, we realized that it's actually a slightly different approach, and we mostly wanted to have fun with it in in in, in that kind of sense. So we just wanted to make music that we thought would be accessible, but also stuff that we would just like. Mm -hmm. Um, And also something that would be relatively smooth, I guess. You know, some of the tracks have vocals, some of the tracks don't have vocals. But theoretically, at least, we wanted it to be something that people would be able to at least in an ideal world, like read the book and listen to the song at the mm-hmm. same time without being too
0: like distracted. I, I actually, did that. Yeah, I did that and it works. It was it was actually really nice.
1: <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. And one of the other things I, I wanted it to do was to give a sense. And Toby did a lot of the, the music since we're, we're very sort of remote from each other. He would send me versions of the tracks and I would get this feeling that actually I found very akin to A kind of one of the the best feelings of being a historian Mm -hmm. because as a historian you're always trying to like understand right you're asking questions you're trying to put yourselves at least in the shoes of other people whose views you don't necessarily comprehend at first Mm -hmm. and sometimes I would just put these on and I'm like I get it (laughs) like yeah um and there's that sort of a sense of that kind of that making the past a bit more relevant, but also kind of more magical in a way, mm-hmm. some a, a place that you can in, inhabit a little bit more um, on your own terms. And um, I don't necessarily know if it is successful completely for everyone in that kind of way, but you know, um, if it does that for like a, a few people, that would be that would be pretty amazing.
0: That's a good point there, right? And it goes back to the earlier suggestion you had about how music can, or has the power to help you associate with other people's, you know, across, across distance. And one of the struggles we have as historians, as you rightly say, is actually getting in the minds of people. I mean, sure, we can read their letters and we can read their diaries, but to actually experience some semblance of the emotion they may have felt uh, or some stirring that they may have felt listening to music or or experiencing or hearing the drums of a British battalion marching into Boston, you know, how do we get that sense and how do we convey that sense?
1: I had a colleague when I was at a postdoc at UBC who helped me understand it in a really useful way when she suggested that what we're doing is, is translation. Mm, um, mm-hmm. But in a in a sense of like, you know, you could be someone who translates old English, like medieval English. And one of the things that they will struggle with sometimes is, you know, do we translate it specifically how those words translate in a, mm-hmm. in a very straightforward way? Or do we sort of translate the spirit of what those words mean in the same way that we would understand it today? Yeah. I sort of looked at it as an exercise in, in translation in that sense. And the other thing I wanted to get out of it was just to... <laughs> <I don't, laughs> I don't think this would necessarily be how people engage with it unless I tell them to, but I, I've written a history book, which is like a new history book, right? Like mm-hmm. it's about the past, but I'd like to think anyway, that it's a, a new book, right? With, with new interpretations yeah. um, of the way things happened at the start of the nation and it's not just a book that's full of old stuff and and so you know when you listen to the songs being reinterpreted in a new way you know it's it's in some ways a little bit similar to you know like if if I wrote a history in 1950 it would read differently than if I wrote a history in 2020 and Mm -hmm. you know The the same thing in in some ways, you could argue, can happen in a musical way, which is something that we sort of tried to
0: do. Did you have any particular artists in mind that you drew inspiration from to help you translate 18th century songs into a a modern version? Toby's probably best
1: to answer that question in, in a lot of ways. People like John Hopkins... Mm -hmm. Um, in the UK or I mean I think there's relatively transparent sort of Coldplayness going on in some of these songs which doesn't necessarily make people
0: on the whole uh, gravitate toward it if you say that out loud (laughs) well the thing about Coldplay is everybody loves it but they just deny that they do I mean it's time to embrace the fact that that everybody likes Coldplay (laughs) (laughs) yeah unless they don't
1: like it because everyone likes it yeah Yeah. um (laughs) but I mean, we also had so – we, we definitely had inspiration in the sense of it being a, a book soundtrack as well. So, I mean, we're not yeah. the first people to do stuff with, like, music and history, and, and we were pretty aware of that. So one day, Musta is at least to my knowledge, the first person that came up with like the word sort of book soundtrack as this mm-hmm. kind of concept for her book labor at sea. She did a book soundtrack that she did with her percussion group. Uh, her book was about the middle passage mm-hmm. and they would go through each chapter and uh, musically interpret the, the, the feelings that were evoked by, by each one. Um, and so I, you know, we took some inspiration from that. There's, there's also plenty of musical adaptions of, of history, you know, I mean, Hamilton exists, um, even though it's a very different way of going about it than us. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's really awesome. I mean, and I totally hear the Coldplay and, and some of the things I was thinking about, at least in the, the three tracks that I heard, um, you know, I was thinking about the postal service mm. a little bit, um, uh, passion pit came to mind, but also, uh, I found in the last few years, I've been listening to a lot of Icelandic composers like uh, Johan Johansson and and, and his uh, his cohort. And so I heard a little bit of that sort of the ethereal quality that they bring to a lot of their music as well. So I it was right up my alley. I enjoyed it. <laughs> well, great.
1: Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, ambient stuff is definitely an inspiration to this as as well as more rock and you know Mm -hmm. we we grew up listening to um i didn't actually understand it at the time as emo but yeah like death cab and like all those kinds of bands um explosions in the sky was like a texas like Uh um, post-rock group and sort of that post-rock kind of stuff is things that we grew up listening to so so yeah i think a lot of those influences uh are, are all sort of swimming around in there
0: no, it's 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 terrific, and uh, and just to get back to the history side of things for a minute, because we were talking about the Federalists, and and the Federalists are in power in the 1790s until uh, the election of 1800, and Jefferson, at least from the national office the highest chair of the national office, boots them out. But during during this time, if the Federalists are thinking about music as a way to reinforce their elite status and unite the people. How are Jeffersonian Republicans thinking about music? are they Do they have a similar perspective, or do they have similar ambitions? Are they able to use music to counter the Federalists in any way? How does that all play out?
1: Well, at the beginning, when Jeffersonian Republicans begin to sort of coalesce as a separate group, they're in a little bit of a bind when it comes mm-hmm. to music. On the one hand, if you're an elite sort of Republican, leader, someone like Jefferson or Madison or or someone like that, in that context, it wouldn't make sense as a gentleman of your standing to go ahead and write a song in support of a non-elected person. Mm-hmm. Like that would just be, it just wouldn't be a suitable thing for you to do. On the other hand, given that they emerge more or less in opposition to an emerging federalist agenda, it also doesn't make sense for them to write patriotic songs in support of, say, the president Mm -hmm. because they are existing sort of more or less as a group in opposition to that. So they can't write songs in support of people they agree with that are not in power, and they also can't write songs in support of people who are in power. (laughs) So what ends up happening is, at least at first, people like Jefferson start to appreciate political music comparatively more as something not that they are meant to do themselves Mm -hmm. but that they are meant to receive so they are you know alan taylor talks about like republicans being friends of the people and, and federalists being fathers of the people and so they see music as a way for their supporters to connect with them as if they were sort of friends even though there's a huge power imbalance going on there. And it's not really that straightforward. Mm-hmm. They see music as something that they can receive from their supporters. And partly this goes to the basic distinction between Republicans and Federalists, that Republicans, when it comes to democracy, have more faith in the people, false Um, but more faith in the people to, to choose the right leaders. Like that is Jefferson's concept of a, a natural aristocracy. Whereas Federalists are like, we we can't possibly literally just, you know, give the nation over to its lowest common denominator and do whatever the majority tells us to do or, or be led by whoever they say. Jefferson, you know, with the caveat, of course, that when he's thinking about this, he's thinking about a specific section of the community that, you know, equals citizenship. He comparably has more faith that they will essentially choose the right person. So what ends up happening is that once Jefferson does get elected into power, you have people writing songs in support of him. And when you have sort of elite Republicans doing that, one of the interesting trends you tend to find is that they don't actually write songs during the sort of, what at that point counted as the election campaign. Mm -hmm. They write songs that mark his inauguration, which is significant to the extent that like, that is a way of sort of vindicating the faith that they had in the in the people to make the correct decision yeah. right overlooking the fact that this the election itself was ridiculously close um, <laughs> and all these kinds of things you know they can still take this as evidence that you know when given the chance the people you know are you know we we should have faith in the in the people to make the right decision and we can celebrate jefferson as the the product of liberty right rather than uh, you know, federalist sort of tyranny.
0: One of the uh, pieces of music you include on your soundtrack is a, is entitled Jefferson and Liberty. Can you uh, help us understand what that song is? And then we can listen to a little bit of a clip.
1: The only complicated thing about Jefferson and Liberty is that I guess like many of these songs, there, there's a, a, a number of different versions. Some of them are authored at slightly different times, but it was sort of most popular at, again, his inauguration mm-hmm. um, in 1801 where people are sort of celebrating the second revolution, I guess. This again gets to one of these fundamental distinctions, which is that, you know, if you're going to separate what Republicans value from what Federalists value, Republicans just sort of have a primary focus on liberty, right? That if we have liberty, then, you know, things will work out, whereas Federalists tend to focus just comparatively more so on unity, that we need to have unity if we're actually going to have liberty and freedom. And so Jefferson and Liberty kind of doubles down on, on that Well
0: let's take a listen
2: The gloomy night- and fun.
0: that song very fascinating given what we've been talking about because in that the first verse there there clearly sounds like they're setting up how the nation has been saved from an apocalyptic vision of elitism and uh, and tyranny, as they say, and that instead of "Hail Columbia" in support of uh, John Adams in 1798, now they're asking the sons of Columbia to rejoice that Jefferson has been elected and that liberty will reign in America.
1: Yes, yes. So that version was authored by a guy uh, called Alexander Wilson, who was a Republican, of course, uh, who was a also a kind of elite Republican ornithology. He worked Mm -hmm. with birds and stuff and he would he would correspond with Jefferson about about these kinds of things later on. But what Republicans do start doing with their music in this sense is what they do with, you know, their sort of broader political strategy in general, which is to turn a lot of the things that Republicans claimed on them back on its head, right? So when Republicans were initially saying that Republicans were these sort of tyrannous Jacobins who were intent on disorder and and ruining everything and and tyranny from from that kind of perspective, here they can turn that back against Federalists by saying, well, actually, you are the tyrannous people because, you know, you had these alien and sedition acts Um, and to a large extent, at least when it comes to the sedition acts and so, and so on, you know, they're not entirely wrong, but they are able to turn that back on its head. Um, And we talked about Hail Columbia before, you know, they do this explicitly with a song like Hail Columbia, where Joseph Hopkinson writes his Federalist version, Republicans decry it explicitly as a Federalist song and, you know, go out of their way to say how horrible it is, but then turn around and write a Hail Columbia of their own that just says all the same things, um, but about Federalists. Mm -hmm. At first, you know, they're not quite sure about actually writing songs themselves But because Federalists had the opportunity to be in charge at first for a little bit, and Republicans are born of this spirit of opposition, it does sort of give a little bit of a head start to the Federalists in the sense of being able to define the terms of how music can be used effectively um, in an American, sort of early American political context. And so, you know, by the time you get past 1800, both parties more or less are, are starting to play from the same songbook Mm-hmm. In that kind of sense, even though I would still argue that that Republicans do at least Republican elites tend to have this sense that writing music still is is more important for supporters and to be a voice of the people as opposed to telling those people
0: sort of what to sing. Well, and there's one song these days that most Americans will have heard of, The Star Spangled Banner, which is now the, the national anthem of the United States. Theoretically, that song is a, a political song that inspires patriotism in the nation. However, as we've seen in recent years, that has become a, a center of protest over racial injustice in the United States. Uh, many uh, athletes are kneeling at sports events during the songs playing. Uh, there are counter protests that saying, you know, you have to support the flag and, and that by kneeling, you're standing in opposition to the military. And that's a, a much more of a modern take on on that particular song. But that that song itself, we might think, was also born in a fit of uh, exuberant patriotism during the War of 1812. But what you discuss in your book is it's actually connected to this larger Federalist tradition that you've been talking about uh, and that we've been talking about over the course of the, of the program today. So can you, can you give us the real history of the Star-Spangled Banner by Francis Scott Key? What, do, what have we gotten wrong?
1: Okay, well, at least the real political history. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, the thing that got me into this particular part of the book was we have this story that Francis Scott Key writes the Star Spangled Banner in this, this sort of fit of patriotism after observing British military failure at the hands of American victory from off the coast of Baltimore. And the thing that got me is like, so if that is true, why did he write a song? Like mm-hmm. he could have done anything, right? Like just because he's feeling patriotic doesn't necessarily hold, that the next thing that he does is write a song about it, right? He could, I don't know, maybe he could have danced a jig or just uh, who knows what he could have done. <laughs> yeah. um, high five his friends, yeah. <laughs> but he chooses to write a song. And so I was like, okay, this is what I want to figure out. It turns out Francis Scott Key is a, a Federalist lawyer. It struck me that naturally stories about his innate patriotism in that moment tend not to focus on the fact that he's a Federalist lawyer. So Mm -hmm. I thought, what happens to this story if in some ways we essentially focus on the fact that he is a Federalist lawyer? What I argue is that he wrote this song because it was in keeping with the way Federalists and especially many Federalist lawyers had gone about using music in the past, right? He wanted Mm -hmm. to be able to tell Americans more or less what the substance of their patriotism should be and it so happened that at that point like many federalists at other times the substance of that patriotism should be unity above all mm-hmm. else which makes sense in a wartime atmosphere but for federalists outside of that as well and he wanted to make sure uh, that they were going to be unified with each other which makes sense in a wartime concept mm-hmm. uh context he also wanted to do it from the perspective of anti-partisanship right um we need to you know, decry all these factions and unite together. And one of the reasons that the song worked at the time and was popular and successful on those grounds is that he just wrote this in this unique circumstance where, you know, as a Federalist, he would never have written that song at the beginning of the war, right? He was completely against the war at the beginning. Like many Federalists, he uh, specifically being against it on kind of religious grounds, it is not until you get to this point in the war uh, where the trajectory of it had changed to the point in which, you know, Washington and the White House had just been burned um, and all this kind of stuff where he's like, mm, actually, I'm really in support of this war now. Like, I, I think that this is an important thing. Um, and that makes sense for him, especially because he's in the South, whereas if you're a Federalist in the North, they're sort of famously going to things like the Hartford Convention and and sort of maintaining uh, that the status quo should should hold, and so what you have in this in in, in that way is a, a federalist who is writing a song about unity that fits with his sort of partisan opponent's position all along. <laughs> when it yeah. comes to supporting this war politically, it kind of makes sense for people to get on board with it in that context, and for people not to. Um, criticize him for telling them how to think because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, except at that point for a minority of Federalists who, you know, increasingly um, on the wrong side of of history, so to speak, when it comes to the the War of 1812, you know, everyone else is more or less moving in that direction. So he sees it as something where he feels like it's important to make sure that, you know, everyone thinks the way he does. One of the pieces of evidence I had for this is the difficulty with that whole part of the project is that Francis Scott Key himself, you know, doesn't sit down and and reflect on his internal monologue uh, about when he's, you know, on this boat uh, writing the song. But he does write to people, you know, in the period surrounding that event uh, and both before and after been writing to a, a, a correspondent where he'd been uh, really pushing this idea that partisanship was so bad that he needed to create an anti-partisan newspaper, like a newspaper that is explicitly anti-partisan that decries the government. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not exactly the kind of partisanship that people tend to expect, um, or that they, you know, are taught to expect. Uh, he held uh, when he when he writes this song. It is of, of a more particular kind because the important part of my argument in general. Is that of course, you know, Federalists come up with this sort of idea of, you know, top down um, Mm. musical power, but it's contested the whole time. You know, they come up with Hail Columbia, you know, Republicans are immediately sort of saying that this is awful and this is clearly partisan and, and no one should take any notice of it. Even Washington in the beginning is like, I'm not really so sure we should go this way or that way when it comes to music you know, people contest it. And, you know, the Star Spangled Banner sort of stands this kind of one example of of when it just so happens to work and, and not really because... The tactic was particularly great. It just sort of fit with the with the situation.
0: Well, for folks who are interested in Francis Scott Key's uh, internal struggle or or lack of immediate reflection, but his his anti-partisan partisanship, and uh, for folks interested in what happens in, in American music throughout the rest of the 19th century, uh, they should pick up your book. Billy, you've been very generous with your time today. Thank you very much. Well, thanks so much, James. I really appreciate you having me on. It's been really fun. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. I'm Jim Abusky, your host and producer. Jeanette Patrick offered editorial assistance with additional support provided by Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is "Witches Brew by C.K. Martin. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite programs. If you like the show, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app. Find this and other episodes by heading over to our website at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.
2: forest spread rich fields and lofty cities shine here strangers from a thousand shores compelled by tyranny Columbia's sons rejoice To tyrants never bend a knee Join with heart, with soul